0: This is The Official Tapes, a radio program where we play the official releases from music's longest and strangest trip. Going to want to bust out the notepad for this next conversation. Uh, Take notes. Thankfully, there's not going to be a quiz afterwards. However, with this uh, professor's ability to teach, I would feel very confident that if there was a quiz, I would totally ace it. Let's get into it. My name is Brent Wood, and my book is called The Tragic Odes of Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. And the subtitle is Mystery Dances in the Magic Theater. So there are 35 songs discussed in the book. Uh, Even if you're only familiar with a few of those songs, I think you'll be able to extrapolate from your experience with that one song and start to uh, imagine your way through the other songs, and maybe that'll uh, open a door to those other songs for you. I really tried to get every aspect of the song that I possibly could, and I tried to weave that into a narrative for each song so that we could explore the, the compositional details in a storytelling context. So that's why we follow the song history. And that kind of gives a little bit of a narrative flow to it. So we're not just getting bored by hearing technical details about lyrics and chord progressions, but you're getting a sense that that the song is a kind of a a character in its own right. We we follow that song from its inception, whether it was a song that Bob Hunter wrote and Jerry uh, fixed up or changed, or whether it's a song that Jerry took from, uh, from folk tradition or from Bob Dylan. Uh, And one of the things that really emerged to me over the course of writing the book, and I I think will emerge to readers as well, is Jerry's great arrangement and editorial abilities. Of course, everyone thinks about his fantastic guitar playing, uh, and of course he writes a lot of great songs, but a lot of the songs that he's best known for were originated by other people. And it's his just incredibly uh, tasty sense, you know, his, his, his sense of... Of, of what works and how to tweak things, how to leave stuff out, how to modify uh, and take these kind of you know, okay or average kinds of songs and turn them into something really special. As I discovered with Jerry, 35 songs out of the Grateful Dead's repertoire and some of his most famous songs uh, really just probing into somber, somber topics around mortality that you wouldn't think would work that well in a rock and roll dance party context. My research question to myself was wondering just what it was, how, the, how Jerry Garcia got away with playing so many songs about death and grief and mortality in a rock and roll context. Well, how did he do it? How and why did he do that? I'm sure lots of other artists do have those kinds of songs, but I couldn't think of a single other artist, like popular musician, that managed to do that seemingly impossible task of of making tragic songs danceable and making them appealing in that context. So when I say that tragedy is an essential ingredient of Grateful Dead concerts, that's I think one of the key aspects that elevates Grateful Dead concerts above other concerts of their peers uh, is their ability to go deep into tragedy and not just dip into a little bit you know with a with a sad love song about getting a breaking up with somebody or or even just maybe a a passing reference to 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 losing somebody important but really to get deep into the feelings uh, of 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 grief and mortality and the kind of anxiety that we all have about being mortal and the the fear of death that we have Uh, if you could like, Jerry, if you could bring that into a big collective party context and get people to experience those feelings, not just alone by themselves, where we would typically confront those things, you know, late at night when we're alone, maybe having bad dreams or worrying about the future. But if you could if you, if you could tap into those deep feelings in a big party, in a big collective context, that would provide a rebound effect, a kind of a fuel. And you'll notice, uh, if you just look at typical Grateful Dead, set lists, there's always that song that Jerry does right near the end of the second set. That's where he breaks out Stella Blue or Black Peter or Morning Dew. Uh, these really sad slow songs. And then there's going to be the rebound effect and then they come into Not Fade Away or, or Circa Magnolia or some kind of big upbeat dance number finale that's extra powerful. It's doubly powerful because you've just gone to that deep place of, of, of loneliness and grief and then you come back, and you come back twice as twice hard up into the celebrate life party aspect of it all. So that's that dynamic with the grateful dead. When part of what lifts people so high at the shows is that you're able to be taken down low first, uh, and that's what really creates the that that big jolt of energy. A lot of it comes from Jerry's particular circumstances, his life circumstances. Uh, He lived through a huge amount of grief and loss in his life. And anyone who's read his biography by Blair Jackson, or there's a book called Dark Star by Robert Greenfield, an oral history of of Jerry Garcia. It really showcases him. He lost his father when he was five. And then he was in that crazy car accident as a teenager where he lost one of his best friends, Paul Spiegel. Jerry somehow miraculously survived that car crash. And that was the message to Jerry that he was, his life had been spared so that he could do something important and not just noodling around on his guitar, but really make it count. So those early experiences of coping with grief and near death uh, encounters kind of uniquely equipped him to dive into this material, into these these sad songs about death. And uh, and part of that is his musicianship. And part of that is his psychology. The psychology gave him the ability to sing all these songs with with passion and meaning and really feeling it. You know, delivering these songs, he's not faking it, you know. He's, he's, he's dealt with all that loss. Uh, his mother and Janice Joplin died within a month of each other in 1970. The tragedies just kept coming, right? Pigpen died in 73 and Rex Jackson died in 76, one of their Grateful Dead's key roadies. Of course, Godchild, Brent Midland, later on, Bill Graham. Uh, A lot of people who are very close to Jerry who are part of his creative process. He watched them drop one by one, and uh, it's hard to imagine how he could find a way to keep going in spite of all that grief. But his way of keeping going was to channel that grief uh, into these performances through these songs. And that's kind of a catharsis for Jerry to let let that trauma out of his own soul uh, and also let everybody else let it out of their souls at the same time. Uh, On the musicianship side, it's another question that's a bit more practical. And for me, as a guitar player and percussionist, I'm very interested in rhythm. And I noticed that Jerry has this mastery of rhythm. He always had a way to make those sad songs danceable. Even the slowest one has a kind of a sway to it. Even, like I would say, Style of Blue is probably the slowest undanceable song and yet there's still a kind of a sway and a still kind of a wave and emotion to it and anything above that black peter has a beautiful 128 rhythmic pattern and that 128 that's just a kind of rhythmic pattern that we would associate with new orleans style music People might think about the song uh, Walking to New Orleans by Fats Domino as a quintessential kind of 12-8 rhythm. Uh, sugar has that same 12-8 kind of rhythm, and it just goes you know, one 2 3 2 2 3 3 2 3 4 two, 3 So it's four groups of three. And that's a special kind of rhythm that's often associated with early rock and roll, but Jerry was able to use it in these songs where it was a more of a downbeat kind of a song, and he used that rhythm uh, in Sugary in and Black Peter and a whole bunch of other songs, Ship of Fools to give the song a kind of emotion so that you don't get dragged down. It doesn't feel like you're actually dragging down into a pit of despair. You're still moving along and it keeps your body moving. And if you can keep your body moving, then you are kind of letting out those feelings, those anxious feelings or those, those those fearful feelings that we have. Uh, You're kind of letting it out through your body motion. And that was the, that's the technical key to the whole thing was getting people to dance to a song about grief and then your body is, is doing the work of, of cleansing your soul. And the subtitle is Mystery Dances in the Magic Theater. Mysteries, that's an ancient Greek word, mystery. That's just a word we typically use now to just refer to anything that's unknown that we're trying to figure out. But uh, back in ancient Greece, it had to do with the Uh, with certain rituals that were powered by what they had uh, for psychedelic substances. Back in those days, which was probably some kind of ergot mixture from wheat that was growing uh, in Greece, or maybe mushrooms, some kind of psilocybin mixture, Uh, and people would go into these caves. The most famous ones were the Eleusinian Mysteries, They would only do it once in their lives. They would go through this kind of ritual where they would take the psychedelic substance and they would witness the gods, uh, and then they would be ushered out again. And this was their one time to actually come up close with a deep sort of substructure of our reality, which they perceived as populated by gods. That was what a mystery was. But a mystery dance would be then to take that out of the cave and put it into that song and dance ritual that I was speaking of earlier. So that's the kind of the mystery dance element of it. And again, I kind of see that was resurrected by the Grateful Dead and by Jefferson Airplane or other groups that were playing in the Second Elf dance party uh, scene in the 1960s in San Francisco. Uh, in the Magic Theatre motif, that's from a uh, famous novel Wolf*, written by Herman Hesse in 1927, I think. It was repopularized in the 60s by timothy leary's words i think because leary was promoting uh, lsd in the early 60s and he recommended that people actually read uh, this, the novel steppenwolf as a way to prepare themselves for a psychedelic trip and so the magic of theater motif got kind of given a cultural currency in San Francisco. At the time, there was a, actually a, a store on Haight Street called the Magic Theater. There was, I think there was actually an actual theater that started up that called itself the Magic Theater as well. Uh, the Magic Theater in Steppenwolf, in the novel, is a, a place where the main character goes after the big dance party that he experiences. He goes back, kind of backstage after the big, big dance party or the masquerade ball is over. And he gets invited into this thing called the Magic Theater by the saxophonist in the band, his name is Pablo. And Pablo has all these special cigarettes and drinks for uh, for the main character to smoke and to, and to drink, kind of like Alice in Alice in Wonderland. And then he goes into this crazy theater, and he goes through all these kinds of psychological trips through his own fantasies in his own mind that clearly seem like they're describing a psychedelic trip. Even though the book was written... Fifteen years before LSD was was first synthesized, and it's, people speculate that Hesse must have maybe had access to mescaline or other kinds of psychedelics that were being experimented with in uh, in German and Austrian laboratories, Swiss laboratories, back in those times. So that magic theater motif, that was created by Hesse and then repopularized, as I said, in The Hate. And I thought that was just a great a great way to frame Grateful Dead concerts as a kind of theater. It's a kind of participatory theater where the band is not the show. The, the audience is the show. The band provides the music and the audience are the actors. So that was kind of my way of thinking about the, the Grateful Dead concerts as being something different from other concerts. Because the band makes no effort to put on a show uh, but the lights and all the people with their colorful outfits and all the people with their dancing, uh, that's where the spectacle is. The spectacle is, is, is among the audience. So uh, it creates a, a, a special kind of theater that's not oriented towards the stage. It's a theater that everybody's part of. So we, when you we walk into the venue, you know, you walk into the Greek theater or you walk into uh, any any hockey arena or whatever, wherever the Grateful Dead are playing, you walk in and you become part of that you're walking into the theater. The moment you walk into the venue, you become an actor and you become part of that experience. So that's where the title of that book came from, Mystery Denses in the Magic Theater. <laughs> I think this is one of the weaknesses of a lot of Grateful Dead books that are already published out there. Is If you try to tell everything, it's just too much. And so I thought you know I'm just going to narrow my book down to one thread just one thread of this incredible tapestry it's just Jerry's sad songs and I'm not going to talk about the other stuff because it's just it would take an entire encyclopedia to kind of get into it all I think a lot of people who are into the Grateful Dead you like you sense that there's a lot more than you can really put your finger on in the moment you know you sense there's so much more going on it's such a big huge phenomenon there's so many different creative forces going into it Uh, it spans such a long period of time Going along with that idea that Grateful Dead is a phenomenon that's just kind of too big to be encapsulated or explained by any one person, there's a lot of people that have their own particular take on one aspect of it. And at some point, somebody thought that it was a good idea to maybe get together together and share these ideas, and that was the beginnings of the Grateful Dead Scholars Caucus, and that was before I was involved. This was like 25 years ago, probably, or maybe 20 years ago. People started gathering at a popular culture conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico uh, once a year, and just exchanging 20-minute-long presentations about the Grateful Dead, and the thing about most university-level conferences of professors, it's just about one tiny slim topic, and everybody's got the same kind of theoretical angle on it, I guess you could say, right? If I go to a conference on uh, some particular poet that I'm writing about, it's going to be all other English professors there, right? And we'll all be talking in the, kind of the same terms. But when you go to a Grateful Dead scholars meeting, there's the sociologist who wants to talk about the sociology of it. And then there's the psychologist who wants to talk about the psychology of it. And then there's the musicologist who wants to talk about the music of it. Uh, and so I think what happened was, because it's such a diverse phenomenon, it really invited a lot of different kind of perspectives on it, and then that kind of started to gel, and people started getting ideas from each other, and people started writing books and and uh, scholarly articles out of that. And I kind of walked into that about after about ten years after it had already been uh, been, been started. So there was a lot of kind of groundwork already done in terms of just building up momentum, I guess. And so for me, it was really, really easy to kind of plug in and say, okay, well, here's my my angle, and I'm going to build on what you guys have already done. Let me see if I can take you a little bit farther on, the, on this one aspect. And so I'm really thankful to all those people that I've met at those Scholars' Caucuses. I've probably made about five different presentations over the years uh, in Albuquerque and also out. There was a special one in 2015 out at San Jose State. And those were all just in, in, invaluable. You know, it's a collective project. My book's written by me alone, but it still draws on a hundred other people and their and their thoughts and what I learned from them. There was a symposium at uh, University of Massachusetts Amherst. This was in 2008, I think, and it was called Unbroken Chain, I think. This was my first time ever talking about the Grateful Dead at um, any kind of university conference, and I just happened to wander into Stan's panel that he was talking on. And he got up to a certain point. He just got up to a certain point in his argument. Stan's a philosophy professor out in, uh, in California. And I felt like, Stan, you're totally onto it, but like you didn't go far enough. And I realized he, he, he went as far as he could because he's a philosophy prof, but he's not a cultural historian and he's not a, a musician. So I just felt like, okay, you know what? I got to go a little bit further. I'm going to write an essay in response to Stan's paper where I actually talk about how the Grateful Dead aren't just sort of using some of the same ideas that Nietzsche talked about in terms of the Apollinian and the Dionysian, uh, I think they are going further. I think they're actually doing what Nietzsche dreamed of could be possible, but he couldn't see in his own lifetime. Uh, Nietzsche, he was very pessimistic about German culture. His life has a lot of ironically strange similarities to, to Jerry Garcia's life. And in some ways they're polar opposites. And one of the things that Nietzsche got very pessimistic about the direction culture was going in in Germany, and he kind of gave up. He withdrew from culture. Uh, he became very solitary, and then eventually he went crazy. And uh, that was it. He couldn't really pr- produce any more work after that. Uh, but he kind of, in back in that very first book I mentioned, The Birth of Tragedy, in that book he dreams about a new culture where there would be, a, a tragedy takes a central place, and people have this opportunity to come together in this mass ritual of music and dance and he just he he didn't live to see that happen he, he germany went the opposite direction it became more and more fascist it eventually created the nazi party and the second world war and all this horrible history that we know about and nietzsche and, and hesse they they kind of saw that coming and they were quite despondent about that uh, so my thesis in responding to stands was that uh, the grateful dead took Nietzsche's ideas one step further and realized his dream for him uh, in a way that he never could have imagined living in Germany uh, it was just a kind of a totally unexpected kind of confluence of forces so that's why I wanted to write about it just in, in response to Stan um, and then that was supposed to be an essay that turned into this entire book I was planning to present the essay like the next year at a conference and that took me 10 years to finish the essay and it turned into a 200 page book <laughs> I wrote a a pretty long introduction to the book that is oriented around uh, some fairly well-known popular stories, sort of fantasy sci-fi stories, and uh, Theodore Sturgeon's book is one of them, uh, More Than Human. That was a book that Phil LeSh mentions in uh, his autobiography. It was a book that was quite popular in the 1960s in the counterculture. It was written in the 1950s, uh, but Sturgeon, he was still active as a sci-fi writer through the 60s. He wrote a couple of episodes of Star Trek. And he, his work was really appealing to members of the San Francisco counterculture at the time. And this idea of more than human that, that Sturgeon brought up uh, was something that the Grateful Dead seized on to. Because the idea of being more than human from Sturgeon's point of view in this science fiction story is that it's not that you become like uh, a, a superhero or that you evolve uh, sort of as an individual beyond humanity. more than human is being more than being an individual it's being part of a a collective consciousness and that's what the grateful dead were aiming for with their music was to not just have five or six guys playing but to have like one mind being formed out of these five guys Uh, so in order to do that you kind of have to lose your ego uh, and that kind of goes along with the steal your face idea with the uh, acid test idea you know you take psychedelics you break down that all that ego scaffolding that you've been building up over your whole life and uh, some people do that they get their moments of enlightenment uh, and they move on with their lives in a a happier healthier way or maybe if you're an artist like the grateful dead you have that moment of ego loss and then you decide maybe I can do something musically artistically in a different way than I've been doing it before that's not individual centered but is a part of Collectively centered, we we try to create a a a gestalt, a kind of a a, like a a pattern that forms out of the individual parts. That's more than the individual, more than the sum of the individual parts. That's what the Grateful Dead were aiming at. That's one one of the three books that I bring up in the introduction, as just to give people who maybe aren't super familiar with all the ins and outs of the Grateful Dead or the musical counterculture, but maybe they know about science fiction. Uh, The other books that are brought up are uh, *Steppenwolf*. Famous book by Herman Hesse that became popular, repopularized in the 60s in California. And uh, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, the novel by Mary Shelley from the 19th century. Those three books are pretty well known. Uh, Frankenstein, that motif is taken up quite a lot in the film Long Strange Trip, the documentary uh, that that came out a few years ago. Uh, Frankenstein, Jerry, when he was a kid, he went to the movies and he saw a film called Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. It was like 1948, I think, or something like that. Totally corny film. It's just, you know, there's nothing really special about it, but when you're six years old, there was probably something really special about it for Jerry, and he had just recently lost his father. So this idea of animating this kind of creature and bringing it back to life uh, was really fascinating to him. And also the way that that film, even though it's a comedy, bringing the gothic creature, you know, from 19th century... Darkness into 20th century California. Uh, that was actually really scary for Jerry, feeling like what he's actually, you know, monsters are real. They can really come into California and uh, in the here and now. So he was always captivated by the creature, Frankenstein's monster. After that, and you'll in that film, you see Jerry. Uh, I think one of his daughters, Trixie, maybe shows pictures to the camera of Jerry having drawn Frankenstein's monster and things like this. Uh, of course, there's references to Frankenstein in uh, Ramble on Rose. That's kind of Jerry's personal prehistory in terms of Frankenstein, but it also ties into the era that Frankenstein was written in, which was was written in 1818 in England, uh, written by Mary Shelley, who was the daughter of two really well-known uh, political activists. Mary Wollstonecraft was her mother. She died in giving birth to Mary Shelley. And she was the leading sort of feminist, proto-feminist of the time. Her father was a political writer, uh, and these people were radicals and revolutionaries. And when we look back at that period, uh, in literary history, we call that romanticism with a capital R. These are, these are the romantic writers. And we don't mean romantic like we're talking about uh, lovey-dovey stuff between men and women. Uh, we're talking about a kind of a radical return to pre-industrial values, that a lot of these writers from English literary history were working on at that time. So Mary Shelley was one of them, but her husband, Percy Shelley, was a famous poet. He was like a a total hippie. You know, he ran away from his family's fortune. He promoted free love and uh, tried to get away from aristocracy and economic inequality and all that kind of stuff. Other famous writers, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, William Wordsworth, these were the radicals of their time. And we call them romantics. They didn't necessarily call themselves romantics. We, we call them romantics in retrospect. And, and there's this original idea of romance, capital R romance, is it's a fantasy story. It's an adventure story. It's like a quest for the Holy Grail. There's a supernatural quality to it. Uh, that's what a romance is. Um, they were very popular in the Middle Ages. And uh, these poets were kind of accused of, of being old-fashioned in this way. That's why they were called romantics. So rom- romanticism, there's a... There's this two sides to romanticism. One side looks forward to a better world that we can create through our radical ideas, and the other side looks back to what we've lost from the past that was lost with industrialization and technology. So there's two sides to romanticism. My feeling is that romanticism kind of made a big comeback in the USA after the Second World War. And romanticism in Europe was in its heyday and throughout the 19th century. It never really happened in the USA, because the USA was still a product of the Enlightenment era of the 18th century. The kind of It's a positivity, it's a pragmatism, uh, it's everything that, that the sort of myth of the USA is based on. And Romanticism, there wasn't a lot of time for that among people who had moved from Europe to get away from the Old World and move to something new. But in the 1950s, in the wake of the atomic bomb, that's when it really hit home to a lot of people in American culture. You know, what are we doing here? Like, we've poured all the world's biggest economy and best technology and best minds, and we've created the world's biggest destructive devices. What good is that? This kind of makes us feel kind of critical and dubious of this big machine that we're all part of. So, the beat writers, the beat poets, Jack Kerouac, William Burroughs, and Allen Ginsberg—those folks—they were like neo-romantics. They were American neo-romantics. They kind of echoed the same kinds of ideas that those English writers did earlier. And then the hippies in the 1960s kind of picked up from that, and they added LSD to the mix, and they created another big wave. That was the musical wave that The Grateful Dead is a part of. So to me, that whole wave of late 60s right through to the end of the 20th century, that's a romanticism. It's a neo-romanticism. It's an American kind of neo-romanticism, and it's that wave of music, and it's the wave of culture that advocated uh, freedom and style, like uh, organic style, like the long hair, the flowing clothes, uh, organically made clothing, um, not shaving, right, uh, just tying into the earth, like just trying to get rid of all the kind of trappings of industrial society and kind of get back to something that was uh, that was more free. To me, that's I classify that as neo-romanticism from my point of view. So that kind of ties into this whole thing is uh, w- what are the earlier waves of cultural history and cultural revolutions that maybe they flared up for a while and then they died down and then they they kind of just went underground and then they kind of come up again uh, in the 1960s with the Grateful Dead so I kind of like seeing the Grateful Dead in that kind of uh, of a historical context to see them as uh, they're not alone in history they're kind of like a new iteration of, of a similar spirit so that's kind of the you know setting the stage for the Grateful Dead in terms of giving a, sort of a cultural context a big, a big picture cultural context for the sort of micro studies of of the songs that we move through for the rest of the book So my book's part of a series and the series is called is called the Ashgate series in music uh, sorry in popular and folk music it's published by uh, the world's biggest academic publisher it's called Rutledge. Um, R o u t l e d g e, Rutledge Press. Um, that's a massive. It's a massive international publisher. So th- there's a number of other books in this, in this in the series that might also interest people who like the same kind of music. There's a book about Joni. There's a book about Dylan. There's a book about the Rolling Stones and that series, that kind of thing. Uh, also books about folk musics of the U.S. and different parts of the world. So there's, it's a pretty well-respected series. And so they're they're selling it from their main international website. It's up, it's up on the website right now. It's available in e-book right now or in hardcover. The hardcover is really expensive because it's made for libraries and librarians. There will be a paperback coming out uh, at some point soon at a lower price, but the e-book Right now is the easy way to get that book at a pretty inexpensive price. Probably a good bet you can get it straight from the Rebelich website.